Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, grab a couple of friends, schedule a weekly coffee, and get after the Word Diet. If that's not you, I'll bet you have friends who do struggle, so please consider doing the same. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. On last week's show, we finished the 7th and 8th Commandments, and those episodes and all others are available by podcast through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Today's show, we wrap up our seven-week series on the Ten Commandments, covering Commandments 9 and 10 on false testimony and coveting. Lord, be with us today. Help us to understand what we can glean from these two commandments, what you want from us and for us in the days to come. We thank you for what this says about your character and your faithfulness, how we fall short in terms of observing the law and your great grace that saves us. Lord, we thank you for all that you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Commandments 9 and 10 today, so we start in Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbors. Now, let's start by trying to put this in its context. We have Commandments 6 through 9, and one way to think about these is that they are in order of the cost imposed on others. But actually, this is rather debatable. On the one hand, we are moving from physical to verbal injury, We are moving from the person himself to his family, to his possessions, to his name and reputation. Certainly the case that it is often seen as less severe in human eyes, and it is less tangible and less direct. The scriptures and the punishments also line up with this. There is no death penalty prescribed for violating commandments 3, 8, 9, and 10, but there are two notable exceptions here. Deuteronomy 19, 18 and 19 says the judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. So in a capital trial, that would lead to death to those giving false testimony. It's also by matter of omission, Leviticus 5.1, if anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. But it's also the case that the Ninth Commandment is much more insidious and arguably worse. For one thing, think about how it was a catalyst for the fall of man in Genesis 3. The impact of society here is directly on the judicial system, but we'll have a number of applications that take it far beyond that. And that gets to the commandment number six on life, number seven on marriage, and number eight on property rights. We expect direct and indirect effects if we have trouble with this commandment, harming those who are falsely accused. And if the false accusers are caught, it undermines those who truthfully accuse. So these are only words. Do you remember the old children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? 
Well, as you grow older, you realize how ridiculous that is, that words are an extremely serious matter. We've already seen this with the third commandment. Or consider Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So in that list of seven, lying tongue and false testimony take up two of the spots. Or consider Jesus, who in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So we know from the Bible and in life that the tongue in general, and false testimony in particular, serve a purpose in being in the top ten, in the Ten Commandments. Consider the great passage in James 3 on the tongue. I'll let you read that on your own, but it talks about the tongue as poison, which can sicken and kill, and also describes the tongue as a fire, the idea that it only takes a spark. Consider the damage that a single match can do, and that's what the tongue is capable of doing. The Life Application Bible talks about four tongues that are troubling, controlled, caring, conniving, and careless. So the tongue can do great good or great harm, and it's a matter of omission or commission. When to speak or not to speak are both matters of serious importance. Ephesians 4.29 is one of my life verses. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's so much at stake here. We also know that our words and how they are taken relate strongly to our character and our reputation. Now, the term here is false testimony, and the word false is interesting. It's usually translated as false, the term that's used here in Exodus 20, but in Deuteronomy 5, a different word is used, and that word is usually translated as a lie. That's also the word that's used in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 for misusing God's name in the third commandment. Likewise, Leviticus 19.11, in talking about other commandments, the third and the eighth commandment, talks about do not lie and do not deceive, but the emphasis here is clearly on lies about others. This is another short commandment, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, but this one's a bit longer. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That last phrase is key. So it's not so much about lying to someone as lying about someone, and the term to use here is slander. This can be in court or in the court of public opinion, A few chapters later in Exodus 23, verse 1, the Lord says, Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with a false charge. I think one clear and exaggerated example that helps us understand this is that we're not even allowed to slander Hitler. Even though Hitler was evil, slander against Hitler is itself evil. And so it tells us what's at stake here. Matthew Henry says, a man's reputation lies as much at the mercy of every person as his wealth or life does at the mercy of a judge or jury. And it does relate to the sixth commandment as violence of a sort against a person. We use the term character assassination. The scriptures use similar language. Ezekiel 22 verse 9, slanderers who are bent on shedding blood and Proverbs 25:18, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow, is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. 
Shakespeare wrote, Who steals my purse steals trash, but he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. In Leviticus 19.16, it goes a step further and says, Do not go about spreading slander. So go about is indicating a lifestyle rather than an event. And often this is related to peer pressure that we should not bend to, again, given the seriousness of the sin. Are we starting or spreading slander? Matthew Henry says, sometimes we cannot avoid hearing a false report, but we must not receive it. That is, we must not hear it with pleasure and delight as those that rejoice in iniquity, nor give credit to it as long as there remains any cause to question the truth of it. So hearing it is one thing, spreading it is something different. Again, what's at stake here? One way to think about this is that Satan continuously tries to slander us to God. Consider Job 1.9 and Zechariah 3 and tries to slander God to us. For example, Revelation 12.10. And we don't want to align ourselves with the strategy of Satan. In terms of a judicial setting, this is causing one to be indicted and or prosecuted. In other words, a perjurer. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. This is perhaps a greater problem back then, given the greater reliance on witnesses. But at the least, a great deal is at stake for the one who is violated by false testimony in a judicial setting, including capital punishment. A couple of biblical stories come to mind here. Matthew 26, the ninth commandment was violated in the trial of Jesus, so you don't want to replicate that. And 1 Kings 21, Ahab and Jezebel commit perjury in accusing Naboth with respect to wanting his vineyard. So again, don't line yourself up with Jezebel. Back to Exodus 23, verses 2 and 7, talk about the role of peer pressure and favoritism here. Verse 2, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And then verse 7 alludes to this, have nothing to do with a false charge. So this is especially tempting when others are joining in the sin. If it leads to an improper death penalty, then there's a serious return penalty from God. If you find the innocent guilty, God's going to find the guilty guilty. We read about this in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 20. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. So we see those peer effects again in 19 and 20, that punishment of false witness will uh, be an incentive for others not to do the same. Do to him as he intended to do to his brother. False testimonies of violence against other people. And then the relevant punishment follows the perjurer, similar to the story of Mordecai and Haman in the book of Esther. Matthew Henry says, Bearing false witness against a man in a matter that touches his life has in it all the guilt of lying, malice, theft, murder, with the additional stain of coloring all with a pretense of justice and involving many others in the same guilt. A court system relies on witnesses and multiple witnesses. In that day, they were in person. Sometimes we use scientific findings as a witness against other people, but those witnesses cannot be false. 
All of this is for the system's integrity. The judicial system needs to be effective to have an effective society. Matthew Henry says it was not enough that they had good laws, but care must be taken for the due administration of justice according to those laws. One last point to make here is to note the difference between Jesus and Paul citing his Roman citizenship in defending himself against false accusations. Jesus did not defend himself, Paul did. So that leaves the question open of when we should defend ourselves. Matthew Henry says it very well becomes those that are innocent to plead their innocence and to insist upon it. It is a debt we owe to our good name, not only to bear false witness against ourselves, but to maintain our own integrity against those who bear false witness against us. So while there are certainly times to let accusations go, there are other times that accusations should be fought for ourselves, for God's kingdom, for truth, and for the integrity of the judicial system we find ourselves in. Let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20, looking at the ninth and 10th commandments. In the first segment, I detailed the ninth commandment directly. Now we're going to talk about a number of other verbal sins and what we might do to get better in this arena. First big question is, why is it false testimony in this commandment rather than lying per se? So one indication of this is that people often imagine that the ninth commandment is do not lie, but instead, as we've talked about, it's false testimony against others. Two general reasons for this, I think. One is that false testimony is more serious, although it is narrower. But especially in a context where testimony was far more important as evidence, you're less likely to get the true criminal, and it generally undermines the integrity of the judicial system. And both of these are really important for society. Second reason is that lying turns out to be more difficult to define, and it has a mixed impact. Often it's for oneself rather than so much against others. And if you think about the commandments, the focus is damage done to against others and with a look to how this would impact society. How do you define half-truth? What does it look like to twist facts? What does it look like to lie by omission or commission? What's the difference between honesty and candor? What does one say in response to nosy questions? When is honesty the best policy? There are a lot of questions that make lying actually fairly challenging to define and to apply. So in starting into a discussion of lying, I think it's important to think about when others' best interests are in my mind or not. What's the letter versus the spirit of the law? And the scriptures are actually quite provocative on this, providing a number of examples of what one might call good lying. We've already seen two in the book of Exodus. Remember chapter one with the midwives lying to Pharaoh's face directly. And then think about Moses's early discussions with Pharaoh about what Israel wanted to do. He wasn't exactly being honest and candid with Pharaoh in those moments. Consider the stories of Rahab and Jael in Joshua 2 and Judges 4 and 5. Think about 1 Samuel 16. Samuel goes off and says that he's going to sacrifice, but that's not the primary reason for the trip. He's really going to anoint David. Or 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan explains David's absence from his dad's table, the king, with a truth that's true, but not exactly the truth either. 
Even Jesus does some interesting stuff here. He misdirects on going to the festival to avoid threats and to veil his ministry in John 7. We think of the passage where Jesus says to be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, and one wonders if such behavior fits in that as well. Or even consider the road to Emmaus, that famous story in Luke 24, where Jesus is not exactly upfront about who he is. It's only revealed later. Historically, there are some fascinating examples. Think about hiding Jews in World War II. Should you be honest with the Germans in that moment? Ernest Gordon shares an account in the book To End All Wars about a man who lied about stealing a shovel to prevent soldiers from killing everyone else. He gave his life to save his brothers in line with John 15, 13. That would seem to be a lie that would be fine and actually desirable. Or think about Lila Rose in contemporary days and her tactics in putting together videos dealing with Planned Parenthood. Deception is involved, but presumably is okay. There are other cases that are a little more interesting. What about a surprise birthday party? I had a friend once who threw one for her husband, and she was having terrible troubles with her conscience. Part of me admired that, but part of me was like, uh, just relax, you're doing this for his good. Think about acting in a play and performing magic. Those are forms of lying and deceit. And there are other tough cases. What do you do with Santa Claus? What do you do with your children? You tell them you can be everything you want to be. Well, that's not quite true. So how do we walk the line between encouragement and lying, right? There's some interesting gray areas there. Now, all that said, lying clearly is not good in general terms. Why not? Well, for one thing, it's contrary to God's nature. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Or Isaiah 53, 9 of Jesus, the suffering servant, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will testify to all truth. John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So it's contrary to God's nature. Lying is also consistent with Satan's nature and his activity. Consider John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, Satan accuses us falsely against God. When things get rolling in Genesis 3, that's part of his strategy, and he accuses God to us as well. Second, it often hurts others and society. Think of Genesis 39 with Potiphar's wife lying about Joseph. For society, Jeremiah 9 is a very sobering passage, verses 2 through 6. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust anyone in your clan, for every one of them is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. What a terrible society to live in. 
Third, it often hides sin. Again, think of the account in Genesis 3 where the line begins with Adam and Eve not being straight with God after their sin. Or Genesis 4 with Cain lying after murdering Abel. It's almost always connected to violations of other commandments. It's a signal of impending trouble and probably slipping back into old habits. Why do you need to lie about it? That's the question to ask of ourselves and others. If you're lying, it indicates that you don't believe that you should be doing it. Fourth, it hurts yourself. Again, Genesis 3, it's a matter of conscience. But also, once you're caught, your reputation is going to suffer tremendously. It's really bad when you leave people guessing whether what you say is true or not. Fifth, extending that point, it's devastating if it's regular and a matter of character. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Keep lies far from me. Again, the Jeremiah 9 passage is useful here. And Revelation 21 and 22 both have lists of sinners, and liars is the last on both of them. There's a difference between a lie and being a liar or having a lying tongue. There's a difference between lying as an event versus lying as a lifestyle. Proverbs 10, 18 and 12, 22 both speak of lying lips. There's a difference between a lie and lips that repeatedly lie. There are so many things to talk about here, right? The use of euphemism rather than candor in our personal conduct. The use of euphemism and half lies in politics. Pilate said, what is truth? And that's often the slogan of what we see in government. There's postmodernism in its excesses within philosophy. And then there's what we've seen in recent years with journalism, quote unquote, and media, where truth is subjective or just a way to pursue power instead of actual truth. All right, let's move past lying to other categories for violating the spirit of this commandment when we use our tongue against others. The first big one is gossiping. Proverbs eleven thirteen: a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. Proverbs twenty nineteen: a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. So what is gossip? It's spreading an inappropriate truth, and that's different from the falsehoods of slander. Slander is a lie. Gossip's a truth, but a truth that shouldn't be shared. Now, is this being done out of malice? Eh, sometimes. Often it's out of carelessness. If it's in the context of a friendship, that's not real smart. It's not so much evil as foolish and showing that you're untrustworthy. And there are some interesting tensions here in prayer request or talking about family matters. When does it go from truth into gossip, inappropriate truth? We have to worry about perceptions here and the intent when we're trying to communicate. Is it constructive? Do I enjoy sharing these moments? And am I wrestling with this tension? There aren't really easy answers on exactly what to do here, but you should wrestle with the tension. One little nugget of interest, Kurt Souter and I have put together discipleship curricula, 21 months and 36 weeks. More information is available about that at thoroughlyequipped.org. But we were in men's ministry at the time, and then women wanted it as well. And when they first used the curriculum, the only question they wanted added was a question on gossip. We had everything else covered, but not gossip, and they wanted to make sure there'd be a question when we did our week on the tongue. So this tends to be something that women struggle with more, although it's far from universal with women, and of course men struggle to some extent with this as well. Another gray area with gossip is that the things shared are often not clearly so true as in the context of rumors. 
One man talked about why rumors travel so quickly. He said no one gossips about a man dancing with his wife. So if dog bites man, that's not interesting. If man bites dog, that's more interesting. A man dancing with another woman, that's interesting. And so the rumor mills get rolling. In the 16th century, St. Philip Neri recommended this penance for someone who had confessed to gossiping. Take a feather pillow to the top of a church tower on a windy day and release the feathers into the wind and then put them back in the pillow. That's what gossip and rumors tend to do, so it's not a practice we should engage in. So how to handle gossip? A few points of interest here. I think the first is to use the golden rule to define it practically. Is it something I would want someone sharing about me? If not, then you should hesitate to say it to someone else. Second, we should work really hard to reserve judgment and we should hope and look for the best in other people. And often gossip is not aiming for that at all. Proverbs 17 verse 4, a wicked person listens to deceitful lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. There's a difference in listening to it and spreading it, as we talked about with slander, and that's the same thing with respect to gossip. It's not admissible in court, it's hearsay, and often we just shouldn't be listening to it. Related to that, if someone says to you, you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, then you should respond, well, then don't. Anthony Tomasino says, nothing throws a wet blanket on a gossip's fun like a good case of guilty conscience. And then I think there's often the need to get creative in the face of gossip, particularly at work. I think this can be challenging not to come off as a stick in the mud, but also not to be encouraging gossip and rumor. I have some other smaller categories for you as well here with respect to the tongue. Those who self-protect and are cowards. Here we're talking about sins of omission, who embrace convenience over courage. Think about the passage in Leviticus 5.1 we've already talked about. Think about Abraham with Sarah in Genesis 12 and 20. Joseph with his brothers, Genesis 37. And maybe most famous, Peter denying Jesus in Matthew 26. In contrast, you have cheaters, those who sin by committing verbally to get an advantage. Think of Jacob or maybe Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira providing false testimony about themselves. Third, we have those who are promise and word breakers. James 5.12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to do is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. With God, he speaks and then it just happens. Think about creation. With us, it's the same thing. When we speak, it should be as good as done. Anything else is hypocrisy. Another category would be to mislead, twist, misquote, or insinuate. Again, that was the strategy of the devil back in Genesis 3, so don't get on board with that. Then you got the flatterers. Psalm 55, 21, his talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. If gossip is saying things to your back that I wouldn't say to your face, then the flatterer is someone who says something to your face that they wouldn't say behind your back. And then the last category would be an exaggerator or boaster, people who use never and always too much, people who enhance their resumes and job applications, people who spin with their desire to portray themselves as moderate and their opponents as extremists in politics, for example, or overselling the virtues and successes that we have. I think about fields like sales and marketing where this is a tremendous temptation. So what do we do to stop or lessen sins in this area? 
So a number of pieces of advice and counsel for you here. The first is to double check slander and rumors in the public eye. Websites like Snopes.com and Trutherfiction.com are very helpful on this. Second, as I just mentioned, we should avoid and question gossip. One strategy I forgot to mention a few minutes ago was that it's often useful to say something good about the person uh, who's being criticized through gossip. Third, we need to commit to paying the short-run cost of not lying, and we need to confess our verbal sins to an accountability partner and to the ones that we've harmed. You might be thinking, man, that would kill me. I would say no, but it will help kill your sin nature. Related to this, I would say to practice integrity in small things. Luke 16.10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. We have to be faithful and honest and candid in the little things. I think another thing here is that it's difficult to discern when we're violating the spirit of the law, and so it follows that we need to listen to the spirit here. For example, when sharing prayer requests, when should we share and when should we keep it to ourselves? Fourth point, recognize that it's a matter of the heart. Matthew 15, 18 and 19 says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Fifth, think the best of and hope the best for people. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 14, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Number six, think of something good to say about and or to the person. Psalm 19:14. may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Proverbs 18:21. the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore each of you should put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And finally, seventh, think of more useful things to say in general. Tomasino quotes Charles Allen, who said, Those of great minds discuss ideas, people of mediocre minds discuss events, and those of small minds discuss other people. In other words, let's step up our game verbally. Let me close with Psalm 15, verses 1 through 3. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. Lord, may it be that way increasingly with us. Let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20 today, covering the 9th and 10th commandments. In the first two segments, we covered the 9th commandment, which is not to give false testimony against your neighbor. That takes us to the 10th commandment in chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The first thing to observe is that the command not to covet actually appears twice in this verse, and this takes us back to the debate that we described in the introduction to the commandments that the Lutherans and Catholics see these as two separate commandments, and they instead combine the first two commandments as one. And that's reasonable from verse 17, again, because we see that the verb is in there twice. In any case, this is the only explicitly internal commandment, 
Now that point can be exaggerated a bit. Commandment number four was to observe the Sabbath. So that obviously requires some internal as well. And the first commandment, which serves as a bookend for this one, you shall have no other gods before or besides me, again, has quite a bit of internal to it. It's also the case that this is a nice wrap-up to the Ten Commandments. With this one under control, everything else is in much better shape. Alec Motyer says the Tenth Commandment is where the Decalogue ends, but it is in fact the point at which every breach of the law begins when by your own evil desire we are dragged away and enticed. And there Motyer is quoting James 1.14. I like what Eugene Peterson says in connecting the First and Tenth Commandments as well. The First Commandment establishes our lives before God in undiluted worship so that we may love him without compromise. The Last Commandment protects our friends and neighbors from being depersonalized into objects of greed, things that we can love without loving them. Just as idolatry results in a pollution of our love for God, so covetousness results in a pollution of our love for one another. If we keep the first commandment well and the last commandment well, all the commandments between are protected. Love God, love your neighbor. This commandment also most clearly sets the table for Christ's teaching in the new commandment that commandments 5 through 9 are matters of the heart. Remember his treatments of 6 through 8 that one would do the thing if you weren't afraid of being caught. Now commandment 10 is explicitly about matters of the heart. In my notes, I've got a funny observation that children are the most obvious violators of the 10th commandment since they haven't been properly socialized yet. Most of us are better at hiding the covetousness in our heart. This commandment also provides the closest look at God's standards and his holiness. You might think you're in good shape until you get to the last commandment. And then the idea of measuring up to God's standard is viewed as an illusion or a joke. This is the only command that all of us must clearly break. And the results of this point us to salvation by grace and by faith. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet just stumbles on one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Or consider Paul's use of covetousness in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. As Paul continues in that passage, it's the famous, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I do want to do. And then it finally concludes at verses 24 and 25, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's covetousness that sets the table for that great argument in Romans 7. Or finally, think about Christ's strategic omission of covetousness in his discussion with the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 22. He avoids the 10th commandment because that clearly is what the rich young ruler is struggling with. It's covetousness. The rich young ruler thinks he's got the law under control, but he hasn't considered the role of covetousness in keeping him from being comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom. Now, why an inventory of specific possessions not to covet? First of all, as a side note, notice that the list has seven entries in it, and this lines up with the fourth commandment's list of seven people back in chapter 20, verse 10, and this is in line with the fourth commandment being motivated by creation and its sevens. In contrast, Deuteronomy 5's telling of the Ten Commandments has two lists of eight. 
So Deuteronomy 5.12 added donkeys to get that up to eight. And here we have the addition of the word land to get this list up to eight when we see it in Deuteronomy 5. Broadly, the list covers different aspects of life, possessions and wealth, relationships, particularly in the household, and work. And it's also more about living creatures. You've got animals and people, the wife and servants, rather than the emphasis on property that we just saw in the Eighth Commandment. If we had a more contemporary list, it might include job and career, durable goods, houses, marriage, kids, ministry, personality, appearance, and other things. We should not covet. Now, what is coveting? It's not a word we use very often. Webster's defines it as usually but not always negative, and so it does depend on the context. It's not just to desire something. Even intensely, it's passionately wanting what others have, particularly with impure motives, including often wishing ill for them, through impure means in rush timing and the like. The sin of Achan in Joshua 7 is a great example of this. One person said, we scheme for that which we most prize. So we prize things, we covet them, and it leads to schemes which are themselves troubling. Again, the Tenth Commandment often motivates the other commandments. The need for context also tells us why this commandment is longer. Remember, the Ninth Commandment added false testimony against your neighbor. And from there, we extended it to all sorts of verbal sins that are also against our neighbor's. So this is similar in that it's against other people. The coveting is all about me. It's about coveting what other people have, and in that, it's all about me. We also see a parallel in the seventh commandment about adultery. This is not about admiring something. It's about wanting to possess it. Remember, adultery was the same. It's not noticing that someone's attractive. It's that you desire it for yourself or actually pursue it for yourself. It's also useful to think about some of the cousins of covetousness. So envy is resenting what someone has in terms of possessions or advantages. Jealousy is resenting where someone is in terms of position or relationships. And greed, which is a slippery term, but if we take its strongest form, it's wanting more and more, never being satisfied. On envy, Frederick Beatner says envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. And on avarice and greed, he says it's based on the mathematical truism that the more you get, the more you have. The remark of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive is based on the human truth that the more you give away in love, the more you are. And that's a quick and easy way to think about the problem here. Greed and covetousness are about what you have, and the kingdom of God is concerned about what you are. It's also useful to define the opposites of covetousness. So that would be generosity and contentedness. Another opposite is apathy or indifference, but often that's not very good in terms of the kingdom either. But if we don't care at all, that's a different sort of problem. Back to the point that covetousness is neutral and depends on the context, it turns out there are good kinds of coveting out there. And the various translations of the relevant Hebrew and Greek words speak to that. Some of these are positive and neutral. Many of them are negative, but again, it always depends on the context. The Hebrew word here is hamad, and it's often translated as covet, but elsewhere it's translated as desire. For example, Isaiah 53, 2 of Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire or covet him. The same word is also translated as treasure, choosing, delight, lusting after. 
pleasing. In fact, that's the word that God uses and then Eve later uses to describe the fruit of the tree in Genesis 2.9 and then in Genesis 3.6. And it's also used to translate the word precious. Psalm 19.10, they are more precious than gold, speaking of the law, than more pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So the law is something to be coveted. There are two Greek words in play. One is zalu. It's only once translated by the NIV as covet. Otherwise, it's terms like desire, envy, jealous, zealous, eager, concern, rage, or enthusiasm. The one use of the term covet in English to translate that Greek word is James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. But the same word is famously used in 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and translated eagerly desire. Leading into the famous chapter 13, that last verse is now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Speaking of spiritual gifts. So again, this is great for pointing out that coveting great things, good things in the kingdom is actually something to pursue, that we should be passionate for the things of God. The other Greek word here is epithemio, which is five times translated as covet. The Romans 7 references I gave you earlier, again, this word has negative connotations, but also some neutral and positive references as well. The NIV translates those as longing for something. Some interesting references here, Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Luke 15, 16, the parable of the prodigal son and the gracious father, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Luke 17, 22, then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short period of time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. So longing can be fine. It just has to be directed to the right things and the strength of God for the kingdom of God. So this is not a call to stoicism or apathy, but a call instead to zeal and passion for proper kingdom things. Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Line up your desires with what will delight the Lord and you are coveting then the right things. Let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20, finishing the commandments today. We did the ninth commandment in the first two segments and started into the 10th commandment with our third segment. There's two big questions left to wrestle with here. We've already covered that coveting is a good thing if it's coveting the right stuff, eagerly desire the, the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. But typically it gets us into trouble thus the commandment. So why is it a big deal? That's our first question. And second, okay, what do we do with this? How do we avoid this? So on the question of why is it a big deal? Well, it necessarily implies a failure to trust God's sovereignty and his providence and to be thankful and grateful for his provision. Again, Achan in Joshua 7 comes to mind. The accusations of Satan come to mind here. If we respect God's character, if we love him, if we trust him, then covetousness is not consistent with that. We're not comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom when we're struggling with covetousness. 
Second is that it fails to love other people, love God, love others. It is objectifying or disrespecting them in coveting something about them, something they own, something they have. Third, it's a root cause for commandments 6 through 8 and sometimes commandment 9. Think of David with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He violates the 10th commandment, then he violates the 7th and 8th commandments, committing adultery, stealing Uriah's wife, and then finally he murders Uriah, violating commandment 6. Or think about Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21 with Naboth's vineyard. They violate the 10th, then the 9th, bearing false testimony, then they murder him, the 6th commandment, and then they steal his property, the 8th commandment. So, These things link together. It's a root cause, covetousness, like the first commandment. If we can get the first and the tenth, we're probably in good shape with the rest of them. It's also a big deal because for us, it's not good for us. It signals discontentedness with our own life, and it can never be satisfied. It's based on our supposed rights and our silly demands, rather than what are really wants and desires that should be secondary to our character what God wants from us in terms of faithfulness, and so on. And it also results in anger, resentment, feeling inadequate, frustration, and the like. It's a failure to embrace the freedom and peace that God wants for you. And as a life based on possessions and deriving self-identity from our position, it's just silly. And it points to idolatry, materialism, and so on. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The writer of Hebrews talks about the love of money, contentedness, and then focusing on God's presence as the remedy, as the antidote for those errors. Now to the second question, how do we avoid this? How do we war against covetousness in our own lives? And how do we make and hold to what Job 31.1 refers to as a covenant with my eyes? A bunch of points to make here. The first one is to develop a more accurate and realistic definition of covetousness. And usually that's a more stringent definition and the high standard that it implies. We had a similar discussion when we talked about lust and anger with the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Here the Catholics and Lutherans have a lot to offer us. Remember, by making it two commandments, I mean, think about the weight that they're implicitly putting on this sin. If it's the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment, if that's the correct interpretation, then there is tremendous weight on this principle of avoiding covetousness. Second, develop a more realistic view of possessions and position. Maybe read the book of Ecclesiastes, which is very helpful for grounding our inflated ideas of what wealth and wisdom and position and accomplishment really have to offer us. Is the new really that much better? And a lot of times we just have the wrong possession. We overestimate the benefits of these things. Third, know intellectually and get comfortable with experientially who you are in Christ. What are the gifts given to you by God? What's your purpose and your calling? This is the ultimate defense. If you're comfortable with who you are in Christ, then you're not going to worry about what other people have in terms of gifts or possessions or anything else. So get comfortable with who you are in Christ. Our identity in Christ leads to so many key moments and key perspectives in the Christian life, and that's certainly the case here. 
Fourth, develop an indifference to material things. Second Corinthians 4.18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do possessions or a given possession possess you or vice versa? Whether you have it or not, are the possessions running your life, right? Or are they just a tool that you're using? Fifth, develop gratefulness in response to God's graciousness and contentment in response to life's circumstances. Think about Philippians 4.11, where Paul writes that he learned to be content in all circumstances, and he's writing that from prison. Now, Paul was an older man at this point. He had tons of experience, so maybe we need to pursue those experiences. Maybe we need to wait for the wisdom that can come with age, but he learned to be content in all circumstances, and it's something we also have to develop. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You can have too little, you can have too much, but the root problem is focusing on what you have and putting way too much emphasis on that. If we can't be grateful for what we're given, we're more likely to be angry about what we don't have. Focus on what we've been given and having our daily bread, and a lot of this takes care of itself. Sixth point, avoid comparisons with other people with respect to possessions and position. Seventh point, develop joy for other people's successes. There's a great line from C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, the 15th letter. He talks about how God wants to bring us to a state of mind where we're just as excited to have built the greatest cathedral in the world or having someone else build that cathedral. Are you happy? Do you celebrate when other people have success? Is there a sizable portion of you that finds that really troubling where you get jealous and envious? Eighth point, there's a spiritual discipline to practice purposeful simplicity, sharing, and giving stuff away. If a particular item has a hold on you, consider giving it away. If you have trouble with this in general, set up a systemic approach to giving and sharing to do battle with this demon in your life. Ninth point, work with people who have far less than you. One of the nice things about mission trips is that we see God work in many different ways. But another in this context is that we see how much we have in contrast to how little people have in less developed countries. And they often combine that with an amazing contentedness. The perspective change of an international mission trip can be amazing in this regard. But you can also get it by working locally, right? Rural or urban poverty can take you to a similar place. Tenth point How do we try to please people without developing covetousness in them as a stumbling block? We often talk about stumbling blocks with respect to alcohol or lust or anger, tempting people to various things. How do we practice that in our lives with respect to covetousness? How do we give gifts? How do we live a lifestyle that doesn't promote covetousness in other people? I think that's an interesting, provocative question to play with. Eleventh, make your own laundry list and pray over it. So prayer is a matter of aligning our hearts with God. And if covetousness is one of those things that's not in alignment, then a list and praying over that list can be a useful spiritual discipline. And finally, twelfth, 
develop a positive covetousness for the things of God. I've already talked about 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and other passages where there should be a longing for, an eager desire for, a covetousness for, a positive covetousness for the things of God. Do we have that? If you have that, then you won't have as much of the negative covetousness that we're focusing on here. The old Christian hymn says, to turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, but it's also interesting when you read some of the literature here, sometimes people recommend focusing intently on the things that we covet and noticing their failures, that idols fail, covetousness fails. So yes, look to Jesus, but also focus intently on the failures of the idols. We do get a glimpse of this in others and in ourselves, and it's important to you know, focus on the positive of what Jesus offers, but also because we're talking about idolatry, then focusing on those failures can also be helpful for us to be realistic about how little idols actually have to offer. I want to close with three long passages here that speak to both sides of this coin. Let's start with Jesus in Luke 12, verses 13 through 15, the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then where does that story go next? Well, the famous passage in verses 27 through 31 of Luke 12, Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon and all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Or consider Paul in all of 1 Timothy 6. I'll read verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But then consider where Paul takes it in verses 17 through 19 of the same chapter. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What a great passage. Finally, Colossians 3, 1 through 10, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Notice verses 1 and 2, set your hearts and minds on things above. 
Notice the reference to lust, evil desires, and greed as idolatry, connecting the first and tenth commandments. And then the list of anger, slander, lips, and lying, all things we saw in the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. That new and old self, you can't go back to your old life. Don't live like the old self. Lord, I thank you for today's discussion. I thank you for the ninth and tenth commandments. Lord, help us avoid sins of the tongue and help us avoid the idolatry of covetousness. Lord, we want to follow you and eagerly desire the great things of a good and great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Previous episodes of The Word Diet are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Interact with me on Facebook, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.